the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for loadbox, cabinet, and mic simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. And now your host, Al Levy. All right, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am Al Levy, and with me is Mr. Bill Hudson, guitarist for the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. How are you doing? I'm great, man. How are you? Doing great. Happy to talk to you. Sorry that I was such a flake the last two days, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> shit happens. Um, shit happens. I'm not normally like that. But um, I wanted to bring you on here because you kind of achieved some pretty incredible things. And we have a big subscriber community who some are doing great. Some feel really down on themselves. Maybe they got into recording or music. They feel like they got in too old or they have too many things stacked against them or they just came to this country and have no money and don't know anybody or, you know, whatever. And you basically, I don't want to sound rude, but you came here, you're a fat alcoholic, (laughs) and you worked your way from local bands to being completely clean, looking like a model, and being in one of literally the biggest bands on the planet. I know you own a house now and drive a really nice car, and so it's kind of like... You're living the American dream, basically. Mm -hmm. The same thing that my parents did and that I know a lot of great people have done. And uh, you've done it in just a few years, which is really, really impressive. So I wanted to talk about your journey and your transformation and how you, you know, got the willpower to fix yourself and overcome not just personal obstacles, but geographical obstacles and, you know music industry obstacles. <laughs> so, first off, congrats on everything. Thank you very much, man. And I, I appreciate the words immensely. It means a lot. And actually, here in a little bit, I will tell you why this is another accomplishment for me. You know, it's funny because as you were as you were talking about the difficulties that most musicians face, I've been through each and every one of the things you said. You know, I was born and raised in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And uh, and I and I mean and like you said, you know, I was I was a fat kid. I grew up, but I went to like rich kids' school. You know what I mean? And I I wanted to be a metal guitar player in 1997. You know, when kids are like all into electronic music in Brazil. And there was a lot of, you know, back then society was a little different too. So like bowling wasn't a monster like it is now. You know, like where people bully another kid. He gets reprimanded or whatever. And yeah. my, you know, back in my day, if you're a fat kid, you're supposed to get bullied. You know, it, that was kind of the culture, especially in Brazil. You know. Yeah, and it's not. It's not like you didn't have a huge support system of celebrities defending yes, you back exactly. then. <laughs> That's what I mean. You know, in fact, the celebrities were telling you to lose weight. You know, <laughs> that was the thing. You know, and. Uh, at the same time, I, I got really into rock music, and and I and I always always identified myself for with the American culture. I, I 
I know it's something that a lot of foreigners say, and I meet a lot of foreigners here all the time that say that too. You know, it's like, well, I started watching American movies or listening to American music, and then I wanted to make it in America. And you know, and I mean, that's kind of what it what it was. But but at the same time. I also my favorite music back around that time and well still to this day was like European power metal you know nothing like the American market back then the American market for hard stuff oh my god was like new metal yeah Limp Bizkit it was really big yeah. at the time and those bands and I mean I, I well I love the first Linkin Park record I love a lot of the corn stuff but like I didn't get a lot into new metal and especially being a 15 year old fat kid from Brazil who played guitar fast that's the last thing I wanted to listen to you know so I, I liked Halloween I liked Stradivarius and and I basically was on my own you know I had no friends or, or girls didn't have any interest in me so I just practiced guitar all day you know that's basically what I did and and you know I was talking about the American culture thing, because at the same time, I, I was, you know, thinking, how is it that a big country like this one, nobody can, quote unquote, make it in music, especially heavy music, out of here, when we have Sepultura, you know, and we have Angra, and that's it, nobody else, you know? But the main reason that, you know, from my point of view, that bands weren't able to succeed in Brazil was because Brazilians were, were basically only open to bands that come from outside. Now, I did a podcast with Doc Coyle, and when I brought this up, he's like, well, New Jersey is the same way, so we used to say we're not a local band. I'm like, you don't understand. You don't understand. Any band that here in the U.S. gets 100 people or less will get 2,000 people in Brazil. Any band, as you know. and But no bands in Brazil can get any success because of the mindset that they have that you know the foreigners are so much better dude i can tell you from my experience basically anywhere south of mexico that's true mm -hmm. it's without fail like i was on a tour with dark funeral once oh the, my black, God, the yeah. black metal band and okay so you can guess <laughs> yeah exactly you can guess how some of those shows were in the u.s yeah like i mean some of them maybe had 250 people yeah and the bad ones had like 30 people <laughs> it was one of the one of those tours and we go to el salvador and it's like 3,000 people yeah dude uh, like it's, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous a weird, it's a weird mentality that i've never been able to figure out you know even even being out of brazil for over a third of my life now i go back with the bands and people speak english to me um, and i respond in portuguese i'm like dude I'm, I'm brazilian you know we met 10 years ago at this very bar but like it, it's so weird it's a very it's a very odd thing to try and explain to a foreigner and i never saw succeeded at it but so you had to get out yeah essentially essentially oh especially because too what was going on at the time was anger was really big and the reason they were really big was because the only rock magazine in the country was their manager too so like any other album that came out they trashed in the magazine and put anger in the cover so i'm like you can't fight that you can't fight that system you know and and then people in brazil oh whatever we don't need it no you you fucking do they're the media you don't fight that you know instead there's two things you can do either you can just not be a musician or you try to play the game and that's when i figured out that i had to either go to europe or the u.s you know 
either or. Uh, my favorite music was European, but I figured the language would be a problem, you know? So I was like, well, yeah, eventually I'll learn German or whatever, but I speak English, not perfect, but well enough to communicate right now. So maybe I should try to get to the States, you know? And it's in a similar time zone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was, that was actually, the culture was another, was another thing too, because, you know, now knowing Europe as well as I do, I'm like, if I try to move to Germany back then, I'll die of depression, you know? Because I wouldn't see be any Walmart or 24-hour stores or you know credit cards I'll, I'll just go crazy you know if, if I did it back then yeah the US is definitely a lot easier to yeah assimilate into yeah dude and plus it's it is the best place to live but because he's got everything you know he's got a little bit of every culture it's it's amazing so I started trying to figure out a way to get to the US you know, I'm, because I couldn't just come out and not have anything. Although I did try that, and I came here for six months and didn't really do much. I went to MI for like three months, didn't like it. And Why not? Oh, man, that's one of my biggest regrets. I, I just thought it was too good. You know, I was you thought like, you were too good. Yeah, like I, <laughs> I honestly like I thought uh, because uh, in Brazil uh, where I was, nobody really played guitar, so you know it was really easy to just play some fast, you know, Ingve Malmsteen lick and have people freak out. So I came here with that mentality that was that good, and I went to MI and I did, I did a few classes, but I, the material itself at the time maybe was maybe i was a little more advanced than that but it was the whole experience that i missed out on and when i went back to talk about actually doing a, a clinic there i saw it i'm like fuck i should have studied here you know because it's a great experience it's a great way for you to play with other musicians as opposed to just a computer you know it's like it's a great way for you to figure out that you're not that good in, Which is important oh, at yeah. some point in time. I remember when I went to Berkeley, I got a quick dose of reality, which was really good. It inspired me to get a lot better at guitar because, you know, in my dorm were Gus G and James Malone. James Malone from Arsis, in case yeah, anybody's yeah, yeah. wondering. They used, so, they used to have a guitar duo back then, too, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's when they started that. And I think it was Firewind that James Malone was in. And so those two guys are on my floor, and they're way better than I ever got at guitar. And so it's just like, boom, you're not as good as you think you are. That's Get to work. You know, that's exactly it. I actually got accepted at Berkeley, too. I, I had to make that choice, too, be, between going to Berkeley or MI back, back then, you know. And I went. I figured that MI would have been a better choice because of the location, which years later I learned wasn't that important. No. Nope. But, but 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 again, you know, from Brazil, hearing that you know when you go to America, if you want to be a musician, you want to be in LA, you want to be in New York, you know, I I I just bought into the whole thing. So you went and. You thought, fuck this, yeah, then what happened? Did, what happened? Then, then what ha I, you know, I didn't like it, and basically I couldn't figure my shit out. I couldn't figure out a way to stay, and I had to go back to Brazil because I came, uh, because my visa expired, you know? 
So I went back, and at this point, I'm already like 20 years old, you know, and I didn't do much with my life. And my parents are like, you know, what are you gonna do? I'm like, I want to live in America. You know, I don't, I don't want to be here. There's nothing for me here. I hate these people. I don't fucking want to be here. And then my parents, they're like, okay, but you gotta figure out something. You know, you went to school, you quit school. I mean, what, what the fuck are you gonna do? Well, around that time, I, I started looking around on MySpace because, again, I was aware that power metal was not a popular style in the States, but I always figured, well, if there was one band, just one, that tried to do that, people would pay attention. And oddly enough, I ended up finding this band at the time, was, their name was Celador, and they had just gotten signed to Metal Blade. And right underneath that, they had a guitarist wanted ad. And I'm like, okay. I mean, Fuck it. you know, I figure Metal Blade, again, point of view of a Brazilian. Oh, they're signed. They're signed to Metal Blade. They're going to be huge. You know, like, again, I'm living in Brazil. That's beyond my reality to get signed to Metal Blade. Yeah. And I send him an email and I said, you know, whatever. I want to try out for the position. And I get an email back saying that they have someone. And I emailed them back and I said, unless you have Steve Vai, I'm a better choice, dude. Give me, an <laughs> like, give me an audition. And then he sends me like drum tracks, you know, just like program drum tracks and the songs. And he's like, okay, well, record yourself, play over these and send it back. And this is 2004, so videos weren't that common, or 2005 or whatever it was. So I did, I recorded So he, he wanted you to make a video or? Or any sort of recording. Okay. And, and I had, uh, at the time, I'm pretty sure it was Sonar 4 or something. And I recorded myself playing, you know, the songs and sent it back. And, oh, yeah. And then he's like, well, where are you from? Because we're based in Nebraska. And I was like, where the fuck is Nebraska? <laughs> that, was, that was literally my first reaction. I'm like, oh, dude, I know. I, I, I still don't know where Nebraska is. It, it is at the dead center of the country, dude. Two states above, two below, and two to each side. It's the dead <laughs> center. Yeah, it's incredible how central it is. But I was like, you know, I mean, I don't care. It's the United States. I don't give a fuck where it is. So, <laughs> for some reason, well, not for some reason, because I had been there a little bit too in Florida. I told them I was in Florida. And when I said that, their reaction was like, wow, you live so far. I'm like, wow, what if I tell them I'm in Brazil, man? <laughs> tell them the truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you know, we, we kept talking online and schedule an audition. I'm like, I'll tell you what, man, I'll come out for an audition. You don't have to worry about me. I don't even need a place to stay. You know, I'll get, you know, because my parents did want to help me out. They just wanted to help me out do the right thing. You know, they just didn't want me to go. But I was like, hey, you know, let me come to the city, get me a hotel and all that. My parents hooked me up, you know, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'll go out there and, and I'll get the job and then and then we'll figure it out. And then we did the audition. I got the gig and that was my entrance here yeah it's a small band it's a band that just got signed but that was light years away from where i was at you know from even my reality how did you find them my space like, but <laughs> how what i mean well uh, how much time did you spend searching wow that's it that's an interesting question because nobody's asked me that yeah i spent a lot of time the like searching the search like power metal term and but it had to be a power metal band from the u.s you know, that's because those are the two things that needed to happen for me to 
because I wasn't gonna try to like, you know, a lot of my friends at the time were saying, well, if you want to move to the States, you want to play, you know, whatever, new metal or all this stuff. What was going on at the time, you know? And, and I never thought that you cannot serve an audience, like you cannot serve something to an audience that you don't really have. Yeah. I, I never believed the whole, it's like right now with Jan, I'm seeing all these guys that play like dream theater music say, oh man, I'm gonna start playing Jan to make money. No, you're not gonna make money, you're not gonna do it right. How do you know that you wrote a song when you hate it enough? You know, so <laughs> it, it's true. It's like that's a great way to put it. It is, but that's how I felt back then. I'm like, how the fuck am I gonna play corn music if I hate that? You know, like like I I, I don't hate corn, but like if, if that's not what I want to do, you know, I needed to find a band that fit my style, at least to like have a good template to show everybody else how I can play guitar. You know, that was kind of the, the thinking at the time. So I dude, I must have spent no joke like oh no two weeks three weeks every day looking on 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 facebook on myspace uh, yeah that's what I, I figured that that must have been quite the search because yeah first of all finding a power metal band in that era in the u.s mm-hmm. and then finding one that's actually pretty good yeah because i'm sure you found a lot of local bands where the dudes were like 45 years old and were absolutely horrible yeah oh yeah yeah there was a lot of those and it's funny because at that time from that search i found two bands that i wanted to contact them and another one that even though they were in power metal they always came up on the search all the time and now i'm really good friends with them is the absence you know from jeremy kling oh yes so that was another band that kept coming out and i and i would listen to them be like this is not power metal why do they keep coming up but i kind of like them you know and i started like emailing with them back Back then, you know, before I ever had a career or anything. But, you know, Salador ended up working out, and the next step was to move to Nebraska, you know. And I, dude, I, even though, even though, yeah, it was, it wasn't the coolest place to live, (laughs) I I still say that it, it Americanized the fuck out of me, you know, because I, I, I meet other people from Brazil, and I, I don't know, I always, I always think that they're, they're not quite in the culture, you know, there's always things that are off. And especially here in Florida, in California, dude, where I lived, nobody, there, there was no person with an accent. Like it was so, it was so. Well, well, they had a Midwest accent, right? Which is really well, which is really considered the standard, because that's why like yeah. PayPal has their call center out there, because they say that the people in Nebraska speak the standard English, um, and that, that kind of is true. That's the way my wife speaks. She kind of talks like a telemarketer. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 dude, no, it was funny because I got out there and I would meet someone, and this person would call me the next day. Hey, uh, well, actually, that was my wife. Uh, hey, will you talk to my sister? I'm like, why? Oh, because she doesn't believe I met someone from Brazil. I talked to, <laughs> you know, I'm like, hi. Oh, oh, she's, what's she saying from Brazil? Yeah, I'm from Brazil. She starts laughing. I'm like, what's so funny? Oh, my God, the accent. <laughs> it's like, it was, it, was a, it was a new thing for those people, you know. And I, I had to, I, I lived there for three years. So I learned, you know, all the terms. Like, I moved to California, I used to call sodas pop, 
you know i learned all the terms i learned i learned to be american living, living was it a Nebraska. big culture shock for oh, you or giant. was it fun no well i liked it because i wanted to be american i was a fanboy of america my whole life you know i was the kind of guy that yeah america's right you know like i was more american then than i am now like being an american <laughs> citizen you know and uh, it was the place it was the right place for me to move to considering how much i hated in my current culture you know and yeah. uh, i i did not like the cold but i was glad that i could finally say i live in a place that snows you know because it doesn't snow in brazil we only know that shit from movies you know first day <laughs> i saw snow and dude this is like when when phones took pictures but like you couldn't really see it as you took it you just pointed at it and click and they look at it flip yeah. phones and i took a picture in the snow and sent to my mom it was the first time i ever took sent a picture message you know because i was like look i'm in the snow i was like 21 22 years old <laughs> you know it was super exciting and and then that same Oh, yeah, and another thing was I really liked the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and the week I moved there, they ended up playing in Omaha. And so it was the first show I saw, too, in the U.S. So it was, Were they huge back then? They were, yeah, they were. Um, no, yeah, they were playing the same venue they play today, yeah. Okay, so they were already really big. Oh, yeah, they were already really really huge but uh i went and saw the west band which is not the band i did the tour for yeah but it is the band that had all petrelli and had uh johnny lee for and those were the sabotage guys that i wanted to see because i was a huge fan of sabotage growing up that was one of my favorite bands and that's really why i went to see tso that time i was like because sabotage stopped playing 2002 and basically just became tso you know that's what most of their fans still to this day don't get too they just became TSO, that's the same band, uh, but they started doing so good that there was no reason to do sabotage. And, <laughs> and, 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 but I mean, that's the closest thing you ever see to it. So I moved to America the same week they're playing the, the, the place. I'm like, oh, that's amazing, you know, I wanna go see it. And that was, that, that was, that was a pretty life-changing first week for me. I remember seeing the show and be like, I wanna do that. That's the, you know. Well, was it your first time seeing a massive rock show? No, no. I saw, but, but you know, uh, you know what it was? It was the first time seeing a massive rock show without like the hysteria of Brazil. You know, I've seen, I had seen Maiden in Brazil. Dude, it's insane. Like, May, I, I'm not sure how the Beatles were, but I'm pretty sure they were. In it's a, similar. You know, yeah, it's, dude. Maiden, it seems similar. Yeah. Maiden has more power while in Brazilian soil than the president. They can shoot someone in the face and they wouldn't go to jail. You know, it's like <laughs> their plane gets close to landing the airport, has to shut down. It's ridiculous. So I've seen Maiden in Brazil. I've, I've seen, dude, I've seen the first show I've ever seen in my life was Michael Jackson in 93. I was 10 years old. And I saw uh, my, my, we had like my mom sent me with my babysitter because I really wanted to see the show. So, what was crazier, Iron Maiden or Michael Jackson uh, in Brazil? Oh, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. Was, but, but, but then again, you know, uh, perspective, you know, like it was my the very first time I was seeing the international show. So, for me, everything looked huge, you know, and, and plus we, we had like, seats we weren't really down there like seeing close to the show i could only see through the binoculars uh whereas made i've seen made a couple of times 
but Maiden I was already a little older. Not by much though. The first time I saw Maiden I was 13 and it was with Blaze Bailey and uh, but dude when man, when they came on stage I started crying like a baby and I I can't I couldn't understand why. It was ridiculous. You know, there's well, like I I have a question about those big South American shows that I've always wondered mm-hmm. which is with all the poverty in South America, how, and I know this firsthand because I've got a lot of family in Mexico and been there a lot, mm-hmm. and I, I've just always wondered, how do the people afford the shows? Because when you <laughs> see the shows, I, I know how poor people are, and so, but when you see 100,000 people show up to a massive show, mm-hmm. did they save up all year for it? Brother, that's one of the main questions that musicians in Brazil ask, okay? Because have you ever, uh, I'll give you an example. I don't know how into that style you are, but have you ever heard of a band called Hibria from Brazil? No, no I haven't. That, dude, they're a band, like, they're so popular in the power metal genre that I heard about them here in the U.S. I had never heard about them in the States, okay? Uh, in Brazil, I mean, sorry. They'll play the U.S. and do bullshit, 100, 150 people show or whatever, but they'll do a whole tour. In Brazil, they cannot get 20 people to show up and what like me with that perspective i did an interview in brazil this one time like this and i was talking about it i'm like how do you guys have a band like that and you don't respect it you know this is fucking bullshit blah 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 why do people why are people not showing up to their show and then someone gets on the chat online it's like well you're expecting that we have money to pay for every every show i'm like when these guys play it costs you the equivalent you know to ten ten american dollars when metallica plays it costs 300 american dollars but you're there at every Metallica show and then the guy said well it's not the same thing I'm like that's the basis of the problem you know that's the basis of the problem well it's not the same thing but I mean come on man you say it's the same with the with the same with the with the merchandise with the with the bootleg merchandise in Brazil you know people will wear we wear these bullshit merch bootleg shirts instead of buying official merchandise saying they don't have money but when Metallica plays they will pay 1600 reais to be in the VIP area and it will sell out the first day so that is the question that everyone's that everyone asks because everybody in Brazil is broke is broke until Metallica comes to town they're broke until I Maiden comes to town. They're broken to just dude Justin Bieber. There was people camping six months before in front of the stadium. Six, six months. months. Six months. And you know what happened? Jesus. Two, two days. Two. Two. Dude, this was hilarious. This was all over the internet. Two days before the show, the police simply switched where the line was. So everyone that was first for six months now had Holy to get in line shit. like everybody else. Why? Yeah, that's so cruel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, that's the way it is. You know, like in Brazil, nobody has money, but everybody has a bunch of money. You know, my mother. Like, where did, where, like, where does it come I don't from? Understand. Yeah, like. Exactly. I don't, I don't know. Because these people are broke, you know, normally. These are people that you, you go out to a bar and be like, hey, buy me a beer, you know. But they'll have VIP seats to Iron Maiden. So it's, it's really, it's odd. I mean, also, also, here's the thing, man. Brazil and I don't know if the rest of South America is like that because I've only been, you know, to play. I don't, I don't know like a lot about the countries, but 
in Brazil, there's no such thing as a middle class. Like the, the style of life that I have here in America, you know, owning a house, owning a car with my dog, with my wife, and I can pay for all my shit, that doesn't exist in Brazil. If you're at that level, you're super rich in Brazil. It's the same same in Mexico. Yeah, you know, like if you if you can buy a car, well, that means probably that you have four. You know, like it, there's not a person in Brazil that has a car. You either have four or you have none. And so it's all these, and there's a lot of rich people there. Unlike, you know, not a lot of people know this, but I, I, I don't, at least from my experience, like m there's more people with money than without money in any given situation in Brazil, as opposed to here in the States where everybody's basically the same, you know, between the, I don't know, the fucking 40 grand a year and 80 grand a year, like that, that kind of money doesn't even exist in Brazil. You know, 40 grand a year, 8 grand a year. No, you mean 200 grand a year or 10 grand a year. <laughs> yeah. So so it's 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 basically these people, you know. It's, it's these, like, rich kids and all that. But, I mean, that's what drives the market in Brazil. That's why Brazil is such a good market for any band, man. You know, I've been I've been to Brazil with Vital Remains, a death metal band that, like, we played this place that was... I don't know, 1,500 people, 2,000 for, people. For Vital Remains? Yeah. Well, I mean, we weren't headlining. Okay, we, we were headlining, but Crisian was, you know? He was us, uh, a malevolent creation, and Crisian. That's that's like good for 100 to 150 people yeah. in the States. Oh, in Brazil, it was like 600, 700, and my hometown was like 1,200. Back to your life in Nebraska. Oh, yeah. How long did you live there for? Three years, three years. I... Moved there in 2005, and I left in, like, late 2008. So, yeah, three years. I was there basically at first for the band, of course, you know, uh, because because that was the thing, too. Even though I used the band as a stepping stone to get to America, so to speak, things started happening for the band back in the day, you know. We had an album out that had a good first week. Uh, we were on Headbangers Ball for like nine weeks or something with the first video. And we did, we toured with Trivium, we toured with Bullet For My Valentine, their first US tour, we, we were supporting that tour. We did All That Remains, we did Loud Park in Japan. The label was really pushing us, the label loved the band, but internally it was a fucking mess. You know, we were stupid kids that should never have gotten signed to begin with. But as things started happening, I, I stayed, you know, I was like, well, I mean, fuck, we're always going to be on tour anyway, who cares where I live, I'm paying $300 rent, you know. But then when things didn't work out and stuff went to shit with that band, and then I'm like, okay, now this place is really starting to suck. <laughs> 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 Were you guys just touring a lot less? And No, no, no. We had serious, serious internal issues that... that okay. Yeah, it was, I mean, basically, basically nobody got along. And as we started... Because, like, Brian Slig really, really liked that band and really trusted that band for some reason because we were not ready, you know. And our egos started just getting out of control, all of us, myself included, you know, like all of us. And we're thinking we're these huge rock stars when we're a fucking 
band playing first on a big tour you know yeah so we're hauling our gear but acting like big shots because we're playing for 1200 people who are there for trivium you know so you, you want to know which bands i've had the most trouble with uh, i think in my recording career it's always the the baby national bands and People seem to say that the biggest egos are with local bands, and that's partly true. But if you really want to get the crazy egos, you got to get the baby band nationals because they are in that first stage of being signed and touring. And so it's all new, and they haven't uh, felt the pain yet of having to stick it out and so they think they're huge and um, they think they're the Rolling Stones and so the egos are out of control so I've definitely seen that before with a smaller national band if you talk to Eric Rutan about this band bring it up Salador he, he might freak out in front of you because our time in the studio was ridiculous man it took two weeks for the drummer not to be able to record and we finally programmed it oh, oh he tried to two for two weeks dude and it didn't, Let, it didn't. Well, let's talk let's talk about this a little bit if you don't mind because oh, okay. um we well we talk about recording a lot on yeah, this podcast yeah, yeah. and uh one thing that Lots of guys, lots of guys who don't understand why you have to end up programming drums sometimes is we tell them that you should know how to program drums because at some point you're going to be in this situation where the drummer is just not going to be able to do it for whatever reason. Maybe his leg got cut off in a tank accident, but probably not. It probably just fucked around and didn't practice and anything in between, but you're going to end up in this situation where it's better to just program than to try but how did you how did it go on for two weeks dude honestly like i don't remember much because also it was my first experience in the studio but i do remember like a full day of like trying to place the mic so the drummer wouldn't hit them i do remember another full day of like drummer trying to play the first song but well, I mean, you as a producer, I'm sure you deal with this a lot. A lot of drummers think that they can play at a certain speed. And when it comes to it, they really cannot play at that speed, but they can popcorn feed it. So when it comes to a slower speed, they'll be like, well, I, you know, I actually think it's easier to play faster than slow. No, all that means is that you cannot really play that fast. So... Yes. Because the, the the speed that you're able to play is the speed that you can maintain. Don't tell me that you can play at 270 if you do two bars at 270 and then it's... You know? <laughs> Unless you can maintain every single, hit, every single hit there, you cannot play that speed. So at least, you know, that's how I see it. But That's how I see it too. It's the speed you're comfortable at, not the speed yeah, that you're exactly. falling. Yeah, not the speed you're falling apart you had, at. Exactly. So this drummer, he was young and, and he got a lot of praise for being young. He was 16. And all these songs were around like, you know, 200, 210, which for power metal, constant 16th notes is tiring for a drummer. But we start, I remember. Yeah, like, because that's at the speed where you actually have to use play. muscles. Yes, you actually yeah, have you, to play. You can't bullshit it. You can't do the, the rapid twitch thing. So I remember, I remember a full day of trying to get this one song that it was at 175. 
And then the drummer kept saying that it was too slow. But the demo was programmed at 175, you know, sort of like, this is the speed that we should be playing this song this whole time. You know, like, just because we slop it live, well, right now you're in the studio, you have to actually play it. And it, it could, it, it just couldn't do it. I. Again, like I said, we were not ready for the studio. None of us was. The songs weren't even ready back then. And, you know, after, maybe it wasn't two weeks, but it was, it was easily like a full week and then a few days on another week of trying to get the drummer to record. Uh -huh. Like skipping songs. Okay, well, this song doesn't work. Which one can you play? Oh, I can play this one. All right, let's try that one. Oh, fuck, that one is not really happening. You know, until finally we ended up programming. But, but Eric really didn't want to. And there's a lot of the beats that are from the drummer but you know, like cut and paste, but, but the kicks are all programmed. Cause I did it, I spent the night doing it. Cause he's like, all right, can we do it all in a day? I'm like, I guess I can, you know? I, <laughs> I sat with the laptop and I did all the drums in one night. So like, you know, I know what is and what isn't programmed on that record. And I mean, and the funny thing too about that album is, because you, if, you, if you listen to that album and you listen to Cannibal Corpse's Kill, they were made at the same time in the same studio with this in the same room with the same gear and the difference in sound is humongous and it's just because they were ready and we were not you know that's a good example of a, of like the musician making the difference with the, through the same producer and studio and gear oh that's dude people when people get obsessed with gear and obsessed with what kind of amp or what kind of compressor or what board are you recording through and they focus on that more than the actual players <laughs> it's so dumb the players make the most difference out of anything in the studio the yeah. players make the most difference for sure and that's the perfect example i've had that same thing happen at my studio where we have a drum set up for one band and then have to record another band on the same drums same setup same microphones, everything. Yeah, and it just sounds that's the completely case of this different. record versus the Cannibal. It always pisses me off. I'm like, how is it the same? You know, that's because we were a bad band. <laughs> but you live and learn. You know, honestly, that experience, that experience, and all the bullshit that happened internally was what made me kind of move into the more of the session side of it and session is not even the right word for what i do because i do a lot of touring but people call session any guy that's not in the band and just gets paid to play you know but session to yeah. me is a guy that does studio sessions which i don't i do too but not not as much as touring so of being a uh what's the word a sideman that's the other yeah i guess that's the other term for it it's that's not from metal but uh I've always thought of a sideman as being the the guitar player that gets called in to save the tour or save the record. Yeah, that's been me quite a few times. You know? So you kind of were like, man, being in a band sucks. Yeah, man. Honestly, that's that that's what happened, you know, because I, I, I had all the bad experiences thrown at me at once on my first experience. You know, I was like, every every single thing about this sucks. Every single thing. I bet you guys were making no money too, right? Oh, dude. Oh, okay. That okay. That one, for example, we we went out. Um, Metal Blade booked as a tour, like like a test tour, like you know, bullshit bars around the U.S. You guys are gonna drive, haul your gear, and play these bars. You know, the thing they do to break in a band. 
And uh, when we're about two weeks before leaving or whatever, Metal Blade is like, you guys got everything ready? You know, the merch? Oh, we don't really have merch. We need that. Oh, <laughs> <You> man. <laughs> so, so, okay. No, so, uh, like, one, one uh, I'm giving an example so I, 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 of the kind of experience we had. So I had this girl. I knew this girl that made T-shirts, just made T-shirts out of her house or whatever. And I got maybe like 100 or 200 made, you know, quickly because, because I knew her. And then the guys didn't like the shirts and didn't want to pay for it. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to pay for all this and I'm going to make all the money. Everybody cool with it. Yeah. Sure enough, all the, all the shirts sold out. I made all the money. Then they got pissed that the tour ended and I had money and nobody else had money. I was like, wait a second. I said this at the beginning that I was going to pay for the shirts, but I was going to make all the money. Yeah, but it's the band t-shirt. You wouldn't make the money if it wasn't for the band name. It is a product. It's a fucking t-shirt that I sold, like a store. You were offered to, to chip in. You said no, so you don't make any of the money. Is that really too hard to understand? Dude, that kind of shit, I was like, <laughs> uh, I, I just can't deal with that. I want to be in a band. I want to play shows, but I really don't want to deal with that shit. So that's when I, saw, I was like, go after the big dogs you know the big dogs will, will need guitar players you know instead of like doing all this legwork and doing bullshit van tours I'll go play for the bands that already did that you know so at this point where were you in terms of uh, lifestyle like were you drinking a lot were you still a fat kid oh like oh my god yeah I, I became an alcoholic on this tour on these first fucking breaking tours that we had you know before that I, I drank some but and I had a few drunken episodes or whatever but you know one or two when we started touring and we had tour support and yeah I, I always I will always thank Metal Blade for this too they didn't put us through this like just you know fuck you go do it no they were giving us good tour support too which I never heard of since so but when that started happening I was like you know what I have a label that wants to keep me on the road what do people do on the road they fucking drink fuck you and I started drinking a lot <laughs> around this time dude I destroyed my life on this tour and it took years to recover but it was the access you know, you're playing a venue, the guy feels bad for you, gives you a bottle. Whoa, what the fuck are we going to do? You know, but all of us, all of us in the band at that time had that problem. I was the only member of the band that had not had, had not gotten a DUI. Holy shit. Yeah, we were all in. Remember, Nebraska, you know, what the fuck do you do there? But we yeah it started getting really bad around 2006 2007 2007 i got kicked out of the other remains bus for telling their tour manager to fuck off on camera drunk you know drunk she's like hey bill slow down i'm like ah oh, fuck off dude fucking dude had a camera going and got that on camera holy shit so man i bet that went over great at the label oh yeah Oh my God! No, the the, but it wasn't just me. I was probably the worst. I'll say that. But it wasn't just me. It was all of us, you know. And, so you uh, guys were like that first out of five band where everybody is just a disaster drunk, yes, just like yes. coming on the headliner's bus, telling yes. them to fuck off, like yes. probably eating yes. all their food and just yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I ate a whole bag of Doritos the same day. <laughs> You know, of their Doritos, I cracked it open. I'm sorry, guys. If from all, if anyone from from that lineup of all the remains is listening, I'm really sorry for that tour. <laughs> Haven't drank in five years, guys. 
But oddly enough, we ran into them again in Japan. We did a festival with them a few months later, and they were cool, you know. But I mean, we were still being drunk assholes in Japan too. But they were cool about it, you know. They still talked to us. They had Jeannie on base at that time. I remember her. And she was cool. Yeah, yeah. And it was Jason's. I think he's still in the band, right? Jason Costa. It was his first tour. I, about the drinking, my first year of touring, my drinking kind of got crazy too. It never became a, a habit, but during the the tour time, the amount that I got comfortable drinking uh, is unbelievable. I can't like I can't fathom drinking like that anymore. It was ridiculous, and I remember at one point when we were on a Jaeger tour and consuming at least a bottle of Jaeger a day plus whatever else other people would give us at one point being like i gotta slow down today i'll only drink a bottle of wine well that's a lot of control (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i was sharing a bus with somebody who said they didn't drink anymore but drank a case of wine a day is that someone that we both know probably (laughs) oh no no is that that one guy that we both know (laughs) The one that starts with R and finishes with Alf? Oh, no, 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 no. It, oh. it's, it starts with a D. <laughs> oh, no, because he does that, you know. No, no, I don't drink anymore, but he's putting well, down our, our mutual <laughs> friend, um, <laughs> yeah. I was at the studio at the same time that he was at the studio back in his uh, in his drinking heyday. And DSI? Was that? Was he doing DSI? Yeah. And oh, oh my God, dude. Like, I was never that bad. Not even close. Like, that's that's a whole other level that I never even... My definition of drinking a lot doesn't even touch the level of drunk that he got to. And it's kind of horrifying. And I know you're listening to this, so we are talking about you because you're an asshole and we don't want you to do that. No, but I mean, does he still do that? Oh, yeah. Holy shit. Dude. He says he doesn't. Dude, you, dude, you gotta stop. That was, uh, <laughs> I love you. Yeah. That was, I mean, th- we're talking like almost 10 years ago that I experienced this. I was like, holy shit. It actually inspired me to drink less yeah good 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 man because it, 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 that's how he gets that's how he can get you know and uh brother with me drinking was like it literally all that i've accomplished you know because it's easy to pat myself in the back and say you know i came from brazil and i i did all this in america blah 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 yeah but dude all that i've accomplished was destroyed also by drinking. How like, so? On tour. Uh, dude, I mean, first of all, I started getting so big, uh, physically big, you know, and, and uh, again, I'm not talking shit about fat people. I'm saying that I, I was so out of shape and unhealthy that I couldn't really be a good guitar player or be hired by anyone. There was no reason for anyone to give me a job when I looked and played the way I did, you know, even though I still had that huge ego that I told you about. I thought I was the best guitar player in the world, I, you know. So it's, it's funny that you mentioned Gus and, uh, and uh, Malone because the tour that made me stop it was with them, with both of well, Malone was not on the tour, but uh, with Arses without him, the one time he did it, he didn't do it. Yeah, I remember and, uh, that. It, 
Yeah, it was Threats of Fury, and I did that tour. I did Fire, uh, not Firewind, uh, Night Rage, which is uh, Gus's other band, you know. And uh, so they were first, and I was playing on that tour too. And within like three days, everyone hated me. You know, like everyone thought I was an asshole within like three days. Gus came up to me, he's like, dude, you gotta, you gotta stop, man. Like, you know, you're fucking it up. Because I, I, I was just being a, a, a complete disaster. And I had gotten the gig because the guitarist that was in Night Rage, who's now in Amaranth, he couldn't do it for whatever reason. And he called me about it. And it was a good opportunity because it was also Gus's spot before. You know what I mean? So it's basically like playing for a Gus, G other, Gus G's other band for an upcoming guitarist. It was a good opportunity, but I blew it. You know, I was, I was like, I played like shit. I acted like an asshole every day. And then the last show was on a Thursday in LA where I lived at the time. And I started drinking after the show. And I woke up the Wednesday after. So I had a six-day drinking binge at home by myself after a tour. So you lived in L.A. at the time? Yeah, I did. Uh, most of my U.S. time was spent in L.A. I lived there between 08 and last year. So, uh, all right. I, I want to ask you some details about this. When you say you were being an asshole, what do you mean? Um, if you can remember. I mean, no, I mean, oh, oh, you mean shit that I did? Yeah. I just want to get oh some, I just want to okay. get some perspective on on what level of disaster we're talking. About. Okay, Peabody's in Cleveland or whatever, wherever that venue is. I got so drunk, I you know some chick pissed me off. I wonder why. You know, <laughs> I ripped out the gumball machine out of the floor and was trying to take it into the bus. Holy um, shit! The bus that was Firewind and Night Rage together, so the headliner and the opening band together, because you know, and I was trying to bring the the fucking shit thing there. Kept getting into shit with the tour manager, you know, like just being a general dick to people. I, I pro now I, there's a lot of things that people tell me that I don't remember, like falling in front of a venue in, and then people clapping because <laughs> it was funny as shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, rolling down some. Oh no, that was a different tour. I, was it Firewind? Yeah, that, there's a story of some venue in Canada that's upstairs that I rolled down the whole, the stairs up to like the front door where all these fans are coming in. This is even before the show. You know, so uh, dude, I pretty uh, high man. disaster level. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, pretty high disaster level. Over man. what? span of time well I, the first tour was 2006 and uh, and I got ridiculous the next year 2007 the other remains thing I told you is barely six months after I'm living in the country okay and by what point and at what point did you quit drinking that was after this firewind tour I just told you with the six day drinking binge I woke up the, the week after and I was like wait did I just drink for a week at home during that time, I figured out that I got kicked out of the Rainbow, which, I mean, with Scotty, dude, which is Lemmy's best friend, we both got so drunk, we told some people to fuck off, they were spending money, we got kicked out. I don't even remember going there, let alone getting kicked out, you know? And I, I, I just figured out everything I did, my wife was like, my wife had to go rescue me from my hotel because uh, she didn't want me home because I was too drunk. So she sent me with the band to the hotel because the band was from Sweden. So they had a hotel. I had to stay with the band. But then apparently I punched a mirror in 
And the hotel kicked me out. So I'm out in the street having, you know, my wife have come pick me up out in Hollywood at like three in the morning. So you're on tour with a band. You come home and your wife doesn't want you home. Because <laughs> you're such a disaster. Asshole. That right there, yeah. that's, that's, that's crazy. She's like, just come home tomorrow because you're too fucked up. You know, and, because normally and, when you get to see your significant other on tour, it's like, what's the soonest I can see you? Like, like we need to spend every moment together because we haven't seen each other in a month or something. <laughs> and she's like, dude, fucking don't even come home. Yeah, my wife, she confided to me a few times that like back when I drank, when I when I was coming home from touring, like. She was always like, well, yeah, it's cool that he's coming home, but, like, now hell's going to start again, you know? <laughs> That's, yeah, like, I remember, like, sometimes, you know, hey, it's two days till I get home. Oh, cool. You know, now it's not like that, but, like, she she says that, like, that, uh, it's a lot of things that she didn't tell me when I was an alcoholic, and she only told me later. You know, I was like, well, maybe if you told me all this shit before... I would have, I would have stopped, but probably wouldn't. Probably man. not. Shit happens when it happens to, when it has to happen. So, uh, oh yeah, and during this tour, there's another catalyst, man, and this is a very important one that I will tell for the rest of my life. During this tour, I got an audition. Okay, now you are too close to this audition, so I'm not going to disclose any names on your show. But I, uh, I got an audition during this firewind tour and i had to basically fly back i don't remember what the, what it was but like it was a show in atlanta then flew back to la for the audition and then fly back and catch the show in new york the next day somehow i made it all work and and i at least yes i think i killed the audition and the kid that came in after me did not and got the job and and I was like, really? Did I really fly cross country for this fucking thing? And I didn't get... Yeah, it was in L.A. And I lived in L.A. at the I'm time. I'm pretty sure I know but, what you're talking about. But I was on a tour. I flew back from Atlanta, you know, oddly enough, from Atlanta. Yeah. Were you at that show, The Masquerade? No, maybe. What? I'm not sure. 2011. I don't know. Uh, no, I must have been in Florida. But I'm pretty sure I know what you were auditioning for. And I can tell you later. But uh, at the end of the day, it was a really good thing I didn't get it because it didn't do anything. But I got pissed off. And I was like, why the fuck did I not get it? And then I looked, dude, I, I, I remember I went like in the bathroom in the in the plane. I like look myself in the mirror. I'm like, of course. Why would they pick me? Look at me. You know, it's like I'm 50 pounds overweight. The other guy was in shape, looked good. You know, even if I played better than the other guy, it's like it's what they need. You know what I mean? This is not what anybody needs. Like I, I was like, think think about it as a company. You know, you, you you what product am I selling here? If this is what I'm selling, well, I wouldn't give myself a job either. You know, so that tour and that particular audition thing, I was like, okay, fuck this. You know, I'm, I'm stopping because I need to get in shape. I can be the best guitar player in the world, but if I look like this, nobody's gonna give me the job or treat me, you know, the way the way that I think that they should. So I stopped drinking on January 1st, 2012, but with that in mind, okay, so, I never... Wait, so that's a... Dude, from 2006 
to 2012, that is a long stretch. Yeah. I'm amazed that you're still in the industry. Well, that's the thing. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, once I... Because, okay, I, I don't think I was really in the industry up to 2012. I knew some people, but nobody really took me seriously. You know Fair enough. I mean? We know people in common that uh, that know who I am, but don't really take me seriously because they remember me from back then, and that's okay. I don't. I don't. I. I have. You know. I don't hold it against them. But the thing is, when I, it's crazy, man. Like when I stop. I was like, okay, I'm gonna work. This is this is why it start, got me thinking about law of attraction and shit like that. Quite honestly, because because I didn't really believe it until I was like, okay, I'm stopping drinking on January first, two thousand twelve, strictly so I can get in shape and get hired to be in bands. Okay, there was no other reason, no other motivation. I did not give a fuck about my health. I wasn't trying to get healthy. Like, you know, those people, oh man, I was gonna kill myself and all that. I did not give a fuck about any of that. I didn't think it was that bad, you know? I did not think I was an alcoholic until after I stopped. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna stop drinking because I'm not an alcoholic, so I can stop. And, uh, and at the time I was in Brazil, and I'm like, I'm gonna lose 10 pounds. You know, let's see if I can lose 10 pounds because drinking, there's no way I'm gonna go to the gym. And I'm, you know, I eat, I'm a fat eater <laughs> anyway. You know, I like Taco Bell, I like eating crap. So I'm like, the way I eat, if I drink and don't work out, well, there's no way that's never gonna work. So I'm gonna stop drinking, see what happens. The first day, dude, I was so nauseated, but I still went down to, to my parents' building. Well, were you, were you hungover? Because you said so. January 1st. So I'm, a, oh, so dude, I'm assuming no, that New Year's Eve was... Oh, yeah, because it was in Brazil at my parents' house. And I, I got so drunk that like I was trying to kick some of my parents' guests out for whatever reason, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, people of my parents' age, too, you know? Like, be like, you guys, get the fuck out of my house. I don't know why. I, I still don't know what happened. My parents don't really know either. But, you know, I got that drunk. And I woke up the next day. Oh yeah, and I, and I was a morning drinker too. I like to like leave the bottle so I could grab it the next day if I remember. So I woke up and the bottle was there, and I fucking I grabbed it. I'm like, ah oh, man, am I really gonna fuck that up? And then I I'm like, okay, one day I I, I won't do it. And I went straight downstairs to where they had like some gym equipment. You know, they had like a, a treadmill. And I, I went on the treadmill. I was like, well, this is the only thing I really know how to do. So I did like 30 minutes of treadmill and I felt amazing after. I'm like, wow, holy fuck. I should be doing this all the time. You know, because I hate the treadmill. But at the end of it, I felt like a sense of accomplishment that I hadn't felt in a while. It was like, wow, I actually did this. You know, it's like, well, it's like when you when you as a producer, you finish your song. It's like, you know, that feeling I made this shit. You oh know? yeah, that that was that feeling for the first time in a long time for me, and I'm like, well, I mean, I, I let me keep trying to go, and and I brought up the law of attraction sh shit because I was trying to work on my look and my look only. Okay, I wasn't too concerned about my guitar playing. My guitar playing was fine. I was concerned about looking good. And one year after, exactly one year after, on January 2013, ESP came out with a catalog with me on the cover without having me play a note. 
Like, it was my look alone that got that. It wasn't the play. Amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was like invited to, like they offered me an endorsement after seeing me at the rainbow the, the, the person at the time was like you know j- just basically on the way I looked based on the way I looked I had a, I had just come out of another endorsement deal but I tried to get back with and I had an upcoming tour which is there's that too I was leaving for for my first tour in since the Firewind tour, I was leaving for my first summer tour, and I went to the Rainbow basically for a going away party, and there ESP offered me. And I was like, well, you know what, man? I just tried to get some guitars from this company I, I used to work with, and they're not willing to help me out. If you guys are, I would love to listen. And I came to the office the next day before flying out. And there we, we got the deal, and me and the president became the vice president Jeff Moore became really good friends so when I came back from the tour we had we had dinner and he said right there if you play half as good as you look you're gonna be a star and I'm like dude what the fuck you know that's exactly what I was trying to do and and I mean just because I put all that energy from quitting drinking to start working out to eating right and all that that's exactly what I got so how hard was it to... It wasn't hard, dude. It wasn't... Like, I say to this day, I tried to stop drinking many times. In fact, it was a joke. You know, oh, yeah, Bill's going to stop drinking. Okay. You can ask any of my friends, you know. I tried, I tried, I tried, but I would always go back to... And then I would be, oh, maybe I'll just drink... Because I hated beer, you know. But I was like, maybe I'll just drink beer and a shot. Yeah, but I hated beer and I loved the shot. So I would do one beer a shot and I'm like "Mm, maybe I need another shot and then there it goes you know so it it never worked it never worked never worked to slow down never worked to stop when I finally got pissed off about that audition and then the the drinking binge with a week after I was like it was something I could grab onto I'm like okay either I'm gonna get in shape or this is gonna keep happening so from that point on it was extremely easy man I, I can't even explain how easy it was I love, you know some of my drinking friends because I still have the same friends I still have the same circle of friends and some of the drinking friends are always like they probably like you a lot better now oh everybody everybody does there's people that did not like me before and like me now a lot like I've been it's impressive enough that I look at it and I'm like is that really me like was it really me back then you know like it, it it was it was weird, man. It was weird. The second I I got pissed off enough, it, it, it just happened like that. And then things started like, and it happened exactly as I as I thought it would. You know, I'm like, okay, the second I look good, I'll start getting calls. I don't know how it's gonna be, but I will. And did, and I did. You know, and I'm like, right now I'm turning down jobs left and right. You know, it's like for a guy that that couldn't that couldn't even get one job in 2011. You know. So by 2013. You're on the cover of the ESP catalog, and yeah. and you've quit drinking, you've lost the weight, you've been hitting the gym, you're looking good. What's uh, What happens next? Well, in 2012, in the summer of 2012, I did the first tour with Circle to Circle. Now, I'm pretty sure that your listeners won't be too familiar with that band, but what it is, is the singer for Sabotage, and also the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. 
And it's basically like his band, you know, when Sabotage stopped, that guy started playing. Again, they were one of my favorite bands. Oh, and also one of my goals in America was like to get involved with that music, you know, Trans-Siberian Orchestra yeah. is, is, is what they are. But I started playing with this singer and he had a, a European tour in 2012 in the summer. So that was basically my comeback to the industry, but sober. And it's funny because one of the things I used to say was that I wanted to play Vakken before I turned 30. And I was 29 that year when I played Vakken with them. That was the first show of the tour. And also my, my first show sober, you know. And from then on, I started running into people I met before on tour and running into like and just making new contacts it's from then on it was really networking because the next thing to happen after that the a and r for esp at the time had a band of his own and he went out to europe and took me to play for him so i made some more contacts then and i just started doing the sideman thing people started calling me you know and then i i spent a period i spent a period in uh in la i think this was the end of 2013 i believe beginning of 2014 where i didn't have any gigs and then that's when i got hooked up with a tommy vaxxed to do the westfield massacre thing you know, and around that time, I wasn't really touring, and and I was. It was my new attempt at doing a band. You know, mm -hmm. it was me, him, and Tim Young, and we had another guitarist, really good guitarist, Rick DeMarco, and basically it was just me and Tommy, the music. You know, me and Tommy wrote like the music. I think it was seven, six or seven songs, maybe it's eight. I don't know. And then we started rehearsing with the band, and but again, you know, I started getting. Then I started getting calls to do other stuff with the sabotage people. The Trans Siberian Orchestra came to, came around the same time. I started talking to them, and I just didn't have time to do that anymore. You know, I also played. Yeah, during this time. Oh yeah, during this time too, I started playing with John Oliva, who's the main guy in sabotage and the guy that writes all the music for the Trans Siberian Orchestra. Not Paul Wenyu the guy who just died not him John Oliva was like his his partner the music he's the, the guy that writes most of the music and he has a band of his own that's called John Oliva's Pain he doesn't really play a lot but he does festivals sometimes yeah I've heard of them yeah he, he he does like big festivals he doesn't like touring you know for whatever reason but I did one important festival with that band and I think that's really what cemented TSO and you know talking to me and considering me and all that. So let's talk about TSO a little bit. And uh, just to recap for people, you did a lot of proving yourself in like the side projects. I guess you'd right. call them the TSO side projects. Before. Yeah, I've been with everyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so like you really, you put years and lots of different sessions and of being around those people before you got offered the TSO gig, right? Correct. It didn't just come out of nowhere. No. And because I'm just saying that because generally none of these great opportunities ever really come out of nowhere. They're usually, at least in my experience, they're usually a result of a couple years or more of knowing people and working with them on smaller things and developing a relationship until eventually the bigger thing happens. So so you said that that tour cemented it and what did they offer you an audition? Well, it was a, it was a few different things happening at the same time. First of all, uh, to, to get a little bit into the history of this, 
John Oliva, the guy I just mentioned that I played for, the main guy in Trans-Siberian Orchestra, his brother, Chris Oliva, died in, 2000, in 1993. And he was one of my favorite guitarists. Of course, I started playing it in 1993, so he wasn't when he died. But he, you know, over, over the years, I became a really big fan of that guy. And I had a very similar style of playing as he did. So for, the, for this show, this festival that we did, that, me, that I did with John, uh, Prague Power in Atlanta, actually. Mm -hmm. We were headliners in 2014. It was, we were playing one of the, the most famous Sabotage albums called Streets. He, and I, I've known that album so well my whole life. I knew how to play it note by note, like the solos, everything that like, everyone that played with John before had gotten close, but not really, you know, quite getting it. And he said on an interview, on an interview to some magazine that I was the closest he had ever heard from his brother, that to play like his brother, you know. And, and I mean, that's, that thing got a lot of attention in the camps if that makes yeah. sense you know in the people in the people like within the people related well who the fuck is this guy because he you know just came out of nowhere which is not really true because i had played already with zach in circle to circle who's also the other singer for sabotage you know so i i, I was already you know going up the steps so to speak uh when he said that It got a lot of attention, got a lot of their fans pissed off too. <laughs> and, and especially, yeah, because they're an older band, you know, yeah. they're a band for, Sabotage is from like, their best album, you know, is from 91. So their, their stuff is from 86, 87, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm 34 years old. Their fans, you know, it's like, but I, I just, I, I, I caught some flag from that. But John told me that, you know, The trans Siberian Orchestra was this thing, and they had other musicians, uh, like in, in, on the backup band, and people and people working around them. You know, there were other ways to work with them, but you kind of had to get in. But he's he's a really important part of it, you know. So so I figure if there ever will be an opportunity, it will come through him. You know, now when I started rehearsing with him and he got, you know, he said the, the thing about me playing his brother's solos and all that. At that same time, Joe Hoekstra got the job at Whitesnake, who's the guitarist for the East Band. It happened at the same time. Like I was in the studio with John as this hit the press. You know, and I, I just looked at, I remember just looking at him and showing him, I'm like, okay, so something should happen now, right? Still, still didn't hear from them, nothing, you know, but, but I kept working with John. John just said, you know, dude, trust me, you know, I just kept working patient. with him, kind of, yeah. But, and then I started hearing from other people in the organization. Okay, then I started, uh, Al Petrelli started talking to me. Al Petrelli was also one of my favorite guitar players growing up. For, for those who don't know, he played with Alice Cooper. He was in Megadeth for a minute. Oh, yeah, he's great. He, uh, he's the main guitarist in TSO. And I started hearing from him, and he started talking about me in the interviews. I'm like, okay, something's going to happen, but because still nobody was calling me, you know. Then and one, of, uh, one of my best friends, who unfortunately passed away last year, was one of the taxing TSO, Kyle Sable. And then Kyle starts saying that he started hearing my name from higher people. And I'm like, okay, well, when are they going to call me? Then eventually I got a call one day. And they didn't really tell me why, but they said, you know, we're going to fly you out to, to Florida. 
do and, you know do and gonna play for us they never called you an audition i there was never a point where i was challenged to play this or that you know what i mean i just kind of played with them and hung out with them it was never like okay let me see you play that you know there was never that so you just went and hung out and you guys played some and yeah i mean i knew i knew a lot of the music yeah so i just sat and jammed with him you know but they never it, it was never i was never under the microscope or well, anything. well i guess you had already passed a bunch of tests that's kind of what i see but then i still didn't know what was happening until until into uh, because they also had the Trans Siberian Orchestra and Sabotage, which is a, it's something that didn't hit the American press. It's so weird to me. The Trans Siberian Orchestra and Sabotage in 2015 were the headliners of Vakin. And when I say the headliners, is we played both stages at the same time. Both of them were playing the same song in both stages. It's like 20 musicians, 40 singers. Wait, and uh, wait. At the same... The biggest production at the same time. Synced? Yeah, synced. 90,000 people saw that. It was the biggest production of all the history of Vakken Open Air, and it was nowhere to be seen in the American press. I, I never even heard of that. Yeah, look it up. I'll send you some videos. It was ridiculous, man. It was six weeks of rehearsal every yeah, day. Yeah, we'll put the videos... Hey, uh, we're going to put these videos for you listeners in the show notes if you want to see what he's talking about. Then, when... I saw that announcement, I knew that they were going to need all four guitar players, you know, because they were going to do the show at the same time. And then I started seeing the Whitesnake tour dates, and then I saw that he was playing that day. I'm like, oh, they're going to call me for that show. They're going to call, and they did. You know, that's that was my first show with them really and more and more nuts than that is that I played on the Sabotage stage. So Sabotage play, stopped playing in 2002 and did this one special show in 2015 and I was the guitarist for that and then on the other stage was the Trans-Siberian Orchestra and we're playing the same song and that for what I understand was kind of like you know my audition-ish you know, it's like, okay, well, we, we see him on stage. We can take him on tour now. Quite the audition. Yeah, dude, that was <laughs> that was pretty insane. Yeah, but it was amazing, dude. And you guys as producer, you, you would love the way we did it. Um, I mean, I don't I don't know the technical aspects, but, you know, the way we... Re Do you know Morris Sound yeah, here in Tampa? Yeah, for sure. So we rehearsed the Morris Sound, one band in each recording room, and then the engineer in the middle mixing it. We all, you know, we all play two clicks, and all you're not really seeing everyone that you're playing during you're playing with during a rehearsal. It's quite a trip. That man. must have sounded crazy. It, it sounded just like the album, you know. There's four guitars, there's two drums, two basses, there's like four keyboard players, twenty singers, and and these twenty singers is Russell Allen from Symphony X, Jeff Scott Soto, you know, from Ingvar Malmsteen, Zach Stevens, of course, from Sabotage, Nathan James from Inglorious. So it's, it's all like, you know, pretty heavy hitters. And again, <laughs> nowhere in the press in the US. Wow, that's, what a crazy production. Yeah, it was, it was pretty nuts. So after that, you're in the band? Yeah, well, I mean, I am in the organization, but for example, I didn't do it last year. Joe was back last year. So last year, I was basically helping with the backup band which is guys that literally sit at home waiting for someone to break a leg, you know? So I did rehearsals with so them. So how many bands are there in this organization? There's two There's two at the same time, 
uh, uh, touring. You know, there's an east and a west. They're mirror images of each other, even look-wise, kind of. And uh, they play the same notes, the same parts, the same music, everything. And uh, then there's a third band that's backup. And uh, some of the drum tech, actually both drum techs are also in the backup band. And uh, and then there's these guys, there's a bass player, there's a couple of keyboard players. And they, they, they rehearse with the real band. Uh, you know, just in case. So everyone needs to be ready. Every guitar player has to know both parts, you know, because you never know who's going to go down. Keyboard players, same thing. You have to know both parts. You know, there's a backup. Uh, I don't think there's a backup violinist, or at least I haven't met one. But but there's, you know, violinists in both bands. Dude, that's crazy. Yeah, oh yeah. It's, it's, it's depressing to come out of that tour <laughs> after the last tour day when you're flying home and you have to do all your shit that's and depressing. you have to go back to real life y- yeah. you know what blows my mind about tso what how is that style of music so big in the u.s it's crazy and it's it's not really as big in europe either yeah but this is it's like it's like power metal, like 80s stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's huge. I mean, dude, some of the songs that we play, they're sabotage songs. They're songs that I was rocking out as a kid, you know? So it's... How? I don't understand. How is it so big? I don't understand either. And there's... I mean, the and the fan base is amazing, man. It's like, they're fans year-round. You know, they're not, they're not people that just come to the show and that's it. You know, because that's what I used to think. Because I've seen TSO quite a few times as a fan, you know. And I used to think that most of the people in the crowd kind of were clueless to, you know, like they didn't really know what metal was and all that. And But I mean, they, they are fans year long. They write about it. They post videos. They're, they're, they're quite incredible. And they do end up in the heavier music because of that i'll give you a great example i know a fan she's i mean i don't i don't know her age but she's in like her 60s she's older and she sent a picture from a slayer show (laughs) and because she went there to see skonic with testament because Skolnick had my position before, you know, well, my position, not anymore, I guess, you know, but Skolnick had the same position for 13 years. You know, he was, he was, he is the East guitar player, really, you know, as far as the fans are concerned. And so because she's a fan of Skolnick, she went to see Testament and ended up at the Slayer show and now she likes Slayer. <laughs> Amazing. Know? So yeah, there's a lot of that. And there's families, but there's a lot of musicians too. You know, there's a, I noticed that a lot of the people that come, they know exactly what was going on in the show, what part, you know. It's, it, it's quite incredible. But I think, I think that this is this may even sound like poetic a little bit, but I I think TSO is bigger than the music, is bigger than the definitely bigger than the people in it, you know. It's it's like the Nutcracker, you know. It's like it's a Christmas tradition. It's it's not and it's not going anywhere after Paul's death, you know. Like it's 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 because the people come, they bring the fa- their families, they they know the show, they 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 look forward to it. Dude, we played. Erie, Pennsylvania. That was the first show, and my mom flew out, flew in from Brazil to see me. We're at this restaurant, and the person's like, "So, you know, you, you are you going to see TSO tonight?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm actually playing with TSO. It's my first show tonight." 
It's like, wow, you know, that's cool. But did you did you know that the city that we basically stop and wait for the TSO show all year? Like, it's it's just it's crazy like that. Like the city, like all these people, they're they're a, they're a big community too. So here's, uh, I think this is funny that uh, so when you were in a tiny band, you were a big egomaniacal asshole. And mm-hmm. then you get into. Thank you, because that's exactly what I was. Yeah, but then you get into this huge band, and like you're humble about it. Well, I think that everything happens for a reason, or the way it has to happen. I was not ready to be in a band like that when I drank. Absolutely not. If there's a big song and I'm not doing the solo, and I'm 25 years old and drunk, I just fuck you. You don't respect my playing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, that's the kind of guy I was. But I don't know. It's like, but but the the most humbling thing about it, man, it's to me about TSO and why I will never like take it for granted or think anything like that is because I got some of my favorite musicians in the same band, guys from different that I like from different projects as a kid and you gotta understand man i grew up in brazil so i mean these people are like arnold schwarzenegger to me (laughs) it's like it's like they are they more they're more important you know it's like tso has russell allen to me is the best singer like since Dio, you know since dickinson like he's the best singer in metal in a long time and he's one of the TSO singers. But as a kid, I also had an Ingve tribute band where I played as Above So Below and I am a Viking and now I'm playing with the original singer in the same band, you know? And then keyboard players, there was only one keyboard player that I was into as a kid. It's this guy called Vitaly Kupri. He's U- Ukrainian, not very popular, but the best at like shred keyboard player style. He's also in TSO. It's like, all of a sudden I'm in this big band but all of these different idols are also in the band how the fuck do, you know how the fuck do I ever feel like I'm you know like that I'm not the the co-guitarist in the band is someone I brought I literally bought a guitarist because he was playing that on stage and I saw it as a kid how do you ever feel bigger than that that's incredible so you're in a situation where every time you go play with these people it's like fuck yeah I get to play with my heroes yeah yeah, I have a my the Chris Caffrey was a very important influence for me as a kid. Here in my wardrobe, I have a, a guitar, a Jackson Randy Rhodes that I bought because I saw Sabotage in Brazil at a stadium as a kid. It is 1998, and I, he was playing a Randy Rhodes. I'm like, wow, I want a guitar like that. So that birthday, I asked my parents for that for that guitar. I still have it. I still play, and now I play in a band with the guy. You know, so uh, there's no way to ever feel bigger than that. You know, there's no way to ever not be humble about that. And as a result, also, like, I know you just bought a house. What was that? Maybe like a year ago or something? Yeah, I moved in November, not even not a year ago. Not even a year ago. Man. But and you have like a nice house, nice car, like good life. That's you did it. Yeah, that's that's how I see it. That's that's how I view it, man. There there are things in my career that I miss that I'm like that I'm like okay, I wish I wish this happened. Uh, like for example, my name and my face are better known than my guitar playing. You know, like like I'm known as the guy that plays in the bands and and does whatever. But that was the goal for a while. You know, I because my dad always like my dad was always really 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 
He was like, well, you want to be a musician? That's cool, man. But like, you gotta, you gotta make a living doing it. You can't be like these guys. And, you know, I mean, I'm no disrespect, but I have, you know, like my dad's seen my friends in Brazil, you know, basically become bums because they didn't make it in music, you know? So the whole to make it thing, you know, is abstract. But to me, for a while, it meant that I'm able to buy a house, that I'm able to live off of music however it is you know because i i'm not really i have an egotistical relationship with music in a way i want to perform and you said something man you said something a long time ago i don't remember where it was either it was a long time it was before we met it was before we talked but i've seen you say something like about how if musicians are chasing success they will never get it but if they can if they're just doing it because they they can't help but perform then they will be okay and what i meant by it was that in order to have the the drive to get great enough to where you're going to even have a chance in this world and to be able to stick out all the shitty parts of the industry, especially when you're first getting going, you have to really want to do it. Like there's no, you won't survive otherwise. But I think there's another aspect that I don't hear a lot of people touch on, that that's how I read your message anyway, or your thing anyway, was that a lot of people are very artistic about their music, okay? And uh, meaning they have something to put out. I'll give you an example of the most artistic guy I know in metal right now. That's Devin Townsend. Oh yeah, you know, he he needs to put that shit out. Oh yeah, that shit. He hears that shit in his head. It's driving him fucking crazy. He has to put that out. It doesn't matter if someone will buy it or not. My relationship is a little different. I like performing. And when I say performing, I just I don't just mean like stage presence wise. I mean performing, playing guitar. I like playing guitar, but I also like playing things that I know how they're supposed to sound and I have fun making them sound really good. You know, so like I have this one part, this one part of the solo. I will sit 3 hours and make that sound right. And which is with the I am Orbit, with the Morbid Angel songs, that's been that's coming in very handy because a lot of the riffs are like, yeah, you're playing the note, but you're not making it sound right. You know, so I have a, a I don't really have a lot of art to put out there. I don't have a lot of like there's I don't have a message. It, it, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes per not every I think that it doesn't just show up in one form. I think that Devin Townsend is one type of artist, but I'm sure that he will readily admit that there are guitar players that are way more accomplished than he is. Like I would love I would love to be in his band playing the parts that he's telling me to play, probably more than having to come up with the parts myself. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I mean, there's, I mean, look at classical musicians who don't really compose their own, their own parts. People going to say that they're not artists. I see myself more like that. Yeah. I mean, are you going to say that someone who can play a Beethoven concerto isn't an artist just because they didn't write it? Of course not. There's... It's called performance art. And dude, even it's funny too, because uh, like I'll use Westfield Massacre as an example. Tommy came up to me. Actually, we, we were we were introduced by a manager that thought we would be a good match. And we were. I thought I thought the album was awesome. But I didn't really care too much for the music that that he wanted to do. Uh, I mean, I 
it's not my style, but but I listen to the album to Divine Heresy, and I listen to. Well, I listened to stuff that he did, you know, and then I listened to some Fear Factory, and I came up with with the album. But those were like set rules, you know. Okay, this song has to sound kind of like this. This song has to sound kind of like this. This song has to sound kind of like this. Oh, I like this part. Like I, I heard some other band that, you know, more modern metal band or whatever. I was like, oh, that's a cool part. So I kind of ripped off that one part. I'm like, oh, Tommy singing over this would work great. It was labor, if that may, you yeah. know, so to speak. It was labor. It was putting parts together that finally sounded good, but based on who I'm writing for. You know, it's not really, oh, this is what I love, this is what's inside of me, sort of thing. It sounds like what you love is the physical act of fucking being awesome at guitar. Yeah, you know, so just performing and sounding good at what something wrote. You know, here's how your music will sound the best. You know, that's kind of what I figured out about myself, because whenever I tried to do things and start bands and stuff. It never worked, Dude, man. Dude, you know what? Worked. I think it's really important and mature to figure that out. Like, there are a lot of guys, like, I, I'm not going to name someone, but I know someone who I think is, like, one of the best guitar players alive. And uh, I think that he should have the gigs. Like, he's good-looking, and he's fucking incredible. He's always been incredible. All the guitar players look up to him. But uh, he's not a good writer. He never has been. But he's always been a phenomenal sideman. Just, like, incredible. Like, he can play your stuff. You know, not you. But, like, he can play other people's music so great. And he brings so much to it. But he doesn't want to be that. He wants to be known as a writer, too. And that has, in my opinion, fucked up his career because he's never been comfortable as just being a sideman, where Hmm. I feel like if he embraced it and, like, loved it and admitted that that's what he was great at, he'd be, like, playing for Celine Dion or some shit. Like, you know, he'd be in, like, the top top bands at this point it's really funny you say that because that's if i had to point out one thing that i think is missing in my career is that the writing aspect of it because for example like how do i put this without sounding like a total asshole i see a lot of people freaking out about guitar players that i listen i'm like okay I could do that, but I don't want to do that. It's it's really, I'm not being mean. I'm not being mean, but it's just guys that like, people think, uh, I see achieving a lot with solo music especially. Then I'm like, I don't, like, I I want that, I, I would like to have that sort of recognition as opposed to being the sideman, but it's like, it's so much work. And if it's to just do music like that, I really don't want to do it. You know, so I, I'm I'm constantly in this existential crisis of like, yeah, man. You know what? I'm touring the world. I'm doing all this, but you know, I'm not. I'm not. Revolver's not talking about me. You know what I mean? That's why I use the TSO sabotage thing as an example. That was a huge fucking deal in Europe. We did a press press conference for 300 people. Holy shit! But 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 the the fact that the U.S. press didn't give a shit really did bother me. 
you know so I'm like okay I, I think about this sometimes I'm like should I be trying to write some other music and be in a band like that yeah but then I'm gonna end up on this festival and doing this and and ah uh, fuck that it's too much work let me go get let me go play and get paid shut up <laughs> that's kind of what happens in my head every single day you know what I mean <laughs> this is why like right now right as we speak I have a singer in Europe recording two songs for me that I'm gonna try to release as a solo artist but they're still vocal songs they still very much sounds like band it's power metal and it sounds like it should be a band but I'm gonna try to release it just under you know just as a solo artist and see what happens luckily for me we are in the internet age where I don't need to do a whole album to try to do that but also you're gonna try to do that and see what happens but you're not going to ruin a work opportunity just because there's no, no writing involved. So this no. other guy I'm talking about ruined opportunities with bigger bands because they didn't offer him a writing position. Oh man, that's see, I don't, I don't think that's very smart. No, no, and especially because he's not a very good writer. So he's, <laughs> but he's an incredible guitar player. So he should have taken those gigs and like just like accepted it except because what he can do on guitar very few people can do so he should have just accepted it you know it's funny you brought this up because with the first band i mentioned the whole time the metal blade band salador that was kind of the mindset i had back then it pissed me off that that the the one guy was writing all the music but it never occurred to me that every single opportunity that came to that band from the record deal to the trips to japan to all the stupid you know metalcore tours we did all that came out of his writing so if his writing was working why was i feeling offended that he wouldn't let me write like how much better can you get than it where it is right now if it's working just let the guy do his job you know play guitar that's not how i thought at the time and that's why i had really big problems with the guitar players and like i love the guy now you know we, we're better friends now and i always tell him like i kind of wish back then that i let you lead the band because it's your band you know, it is your band that got signed. It is your band that got the opportunities. Why the hell did I think that I could do better than you? That's stupid. You know? Well, that's maturity talking. Yeah, but that's like, you know, I'm saying that 10 years later. Yeah. Because that was literally 10 years ago. Well, it's, it's interesting what a little perspective can do. But that perspective, I feel, has allowed you to now be at a point where you are living the dream. So it's important to know yourself. Yeah. But and I don't like saying living the dream yet, man. I'm not. I don't feel comfortable yet. You know what well, I mean? Well, you won't ever feel comfortable, hopefully, because I've 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 had three years of like good income, which is what I which was what I had in my head. You know, like enough to get a house or whatever. But I'm like, okay, but I if I have a good schedule until like mid 2018. But I'm like, what if I don't get anything after? You know, that's always like that's always buzzing in my head, man. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's the the eternal struggle yeah uh, well i i just i just thought that you know uh, man when i buy a house things are gonna change no now i freak out now it's like oh fuck I, I don't have to pay rent now i gotta pay for a house fuck yeah it's uh, it definitely changes things <laughs> it's funny how obvious that is but it didn't really hit you until it happens you know well i mean dude i just had blasco on here and 
even though he is actually living the dream, he he yeah. still doesn't feel like any of it's set in stone, and he still feels like it could fall apart at any moment, and still keeps that hustle alive. I always wonder if we ever reach a point where that doesn't happen. Because if someone like Blasco feels like that, and I know that Gus does too, and he was in the same band until recently, you know. It's like, it's like when do you, when, when is it good? You know, when, when do you feel safe? In music, it probably never happens. Probably right? never. <laughs> and, and yeah, man, it, it's, it, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, that your friend doesn't recognize like, You know, unfortunately, not everyone can be a songwriter. Not everyone can be Steve Harris. You know, there are six people we made, and there's only one Steve Harris. I always say that. Dude, but also not everyone can be, like, the guitar player that gets hired. Like, exactly. there's only one or two positions, right, in any band for a guitar player to come in. It's not like being an amazing guitar player is not easy. So accept it and love it and by the way on the topic of does it ever go away in music of the feeling of needing the next gig my dad is in his 60s symphony conductor very successful and he's still trying to get the next gig always no sh who's your dad uh his name is yoel levy y-o-e-l that's awesome yeah but i'm just saying i don't think it ever goes away like If he's in his mid-60s and he, by all <laughs> by all accounts, has made it, but he's still hustling. So. Dude, that's amazing. I would like to talk about that off the air. After. Sure. I didn't know you had a conductor, Dad. I went to school to be a conductor. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'll tell you all about it. But, uh, Bill, thank you so much for coming on here and being so open this is a great episode oh i'm glad man yeah sometimes i think i talk too much that's what a podcast is for <laughs> that's awesome man and uh yeah i appreciate oh you know how i said at the beginning that being in your podcast was actually something that i considered an accomplishment specifically because because of the audience that you reach okay so i mentioned how you know i'm doing all these things but revolver isn't talking about me now your audience is exactly the audience that i don't reach you know i know i know for a fact that most of the people listening to this have never heard of me before And now there's enough of like, wait, what the fuck? How come? You know, that they'll go and check it out. Everything I do, even the gigs this summer, you know, I'm doing I Am Morbid, which is a death metal audience. Yep. You know, it's Morbid Angel fans. And I'm doing Udo Dirk Schneider from Accept, who's also a power metal. For, you know, for US standards, he's also power metal. I do not reach the younger kids. I do not reach the, you know, the super producer kids. So I thank you very much for having me here because this is important for my company, for, for me. You know? It's a pleasure. It's really good. Thank you very much. Man. Yeah, and all of you guys listening uh, who haven't heard of Bill, now you have and go check him out. That's so right. Tell him he's sexy. Yep, let's try. <laughs> the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for load box, cabinet, and mic simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record Record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com.